Guys, and welcome back to the most bizarre show on the internet, run by the most bizarre crew on the internet. And that crew is me, Shane. And I'm Oren. And I'm Jenny. And uh, before we can get into today's bizarro weirdness, we have to knock out the front of house stuff. So, Oren, take it away with uh, how they can share their encounters with us. All right, guys. So, if any of y'all want to share strange encounters y'all have had, you can reach out to us through email at bizarreencounters at outlook.com. We're also active on Instagram. That's a great way to get in touch with us. Um, We'd be excited to hear y'all's stories. We'll share them on air if you want. If not, we'll just uh, keep those stories for our own personal research. But we always love hearing the uh, bizarre encounters of our listeners. And if you guys wouldn't mind reviewing or sharing the show, it's an awesome way to make it so that the show gets seen by more people, gets some more reach. Um, sharing with a friend, also a huge component to that, is all you got to do is drop the name of the show. You know somebody that's into Sasquatch, the paranormal, whatever. Just drop the name of the show. They might you know, retain it in the back of their mind, go home, look it up later. It goes a long way. And uh, if anybody wants to leave an awesome five-star review, we would love to read those on the show, of course. Uh, we have a couple of them, but we're waiting for them to stockpile, and then we're going to give all of you guys an awesome shout-out for taking the time to leave us an awesome review. Um, if you guys want to get some updates on the show, uh, you guys can uh, go and follow us on social media. Uh, that's the best way to get any new updates on any new mini episodes we're doing, uh, any new giveaways we're doing, pretty much anything pertaining to the show. Instagram, that's the way to go. Uh, if you want to have some awesome conversations with some awesome people about some weird, bizarre fringe topics, uh, you can pop into the Telegram or the Discord. Uh, we're in the process of building those up. So everybody that comes in and contributes is going to be a great help. So... If you guys want to support the show, you can do so through uh, going and checking out our Patreon. There, it's the Open Minds Media Patreon, so you'll get early access to episodes of Bizarre Encounters. You'll get live access to Bizarre Encounters. Uh, there may be some additional bonus content as far as the Bizarre Encounter side coming up there in the future, so uh, definitely go and keep an eye out over there. Uh, you can also support the show by getting yourself some awesome, awesome Bizarre Encounters merch. Uh, we do also have some Bite Size Bizarreties merch up, and all of that is available on the Open Minds Media merch store. Uh, you guys can also donate to the show if you'd like to, and there we can upgrade some equipment, get some better microphones over on uh, Orin and Jenny's end, because that's uh, one of the next things that we want to try to do to try to get some more crisp, crisp sound for you guys. So if you guys want to donate in that form, uh, you can donate through Red Circle, which is our RSS host. 
Uh, going back to some more merchandise, though, if you guys want to get yourself some awesome cryptid, paranormal, alien-related merchandise, go and check out Crypto Theology. Joe's always killing it over there, always adding some new designs. Uh, the most recent one that I've seen from him is some Hodag references to Men in Black parody. It's pretty awesome. So do yourself a favor and go check that out. And all the links we've mentioned are on our link tree listed in the show notes. Our guest tonight is George Lunsford. He's an author, actor, and a podcaster specializing in science fiction, horror, and folklore. He's uh, from Asheville, North Carolina, so Shane's outnumbered today. He's got three North Carolina folks against him. Um, Mr. Lunsford's new book is titled Legends, Myths, Monsters, and Ghosts, the USA Edition, and it's now available. So, George, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, uh, I guess to kind of get rolling into everything, uh, why don't we start off with your books and how exactly you got started with uh, collecting stories and starting to write your books? Well, I'm kind of an odd character. I'll warn you now. I decided I wanted to be a writer, so I started writing, and I, I figured when I was young, uh, the older people would tell you stories about the area you lived in. They'd tell you stories like you know, a ghost story or something that happened in the past. So, I thought, hey, what else would be a better thing to do a book about? So I started writing about different regions of the United States, and uh, I just wanted to pass the stories on that people these days don't ever hear. And that, that was pretty much it, the way I got started. <laughs> One of your main focuses when it comes to writing your books, of course, is collecting stories and making sure that they're not lost in time. So that being right. said, what are some of the stories that you feel almost kind of got lost in time, but you were able to like kind of snag them before they got before they got lost? I think most of the small town stories, like around here, everybody's heard of like, I mean, I've been here in Nashville. Everybody's heard of Helen's Bridge, but nobody knows the whole story. At least not the one I was told when I was growing up. They've, they've made things up and they've changed it around. So I took the story that I was told and I put that in a book. And most people say, do you know like some of the legends from the Cherokee? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, I, I didn't think that a lot of people would know that. And I work in Cherokee every month. So what I did is I gathered stories up while I was out there. Plus, I kind of got an edge. My wife is half Cherokee. So, you know. I was going to say I'm Cherokee, too. That's where my interest comes in. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she's half Cherokee. So we went with that. And I talked to some of the older, the older people out there and and. If you notice when I talk about them, I usually call Indians because the elders out there refer to themselves as Indians. So out of respect for them, that's how I refer, I refer to them. So uh, what are some of the uh, best stories that you feel that you've been able to uh, collect from the elders? Uh, the little people and uh, the Raven Mocker. That's two of my favorites. So the little, the little people because they said they actually found bones and tunnels while they were doing renovations out there. Are you referring to like the Pukwudgies as far as little people go, or are you talking about like a different group of little people? Theirs is a little different than the Pukwudgies. They actually have different types of little people. They've got the rock little people, and they've got uh, – I can't remember what I said right offhand, but I know they got ones for the rock and earth and different ones, and each one of them has a different purpose in the Cherokee legends and their lore. Like some of them are, are tricksters. Some of them actually help people. Some of them like to not be so nice. <laughs> so, 
So, George, I can't believe you uh, just brought up the Cherokee little people. I actually just wrote a note um, as you were talking to ask you about that. So that's something that's come up, you know, in my research here recently, kind of in regards to like fairy lore and whatnot. And that there's a lot of similarities between these accounts of the Cherokee little people and, you know, fairy stories, tales, accounts from all over the world. Uh, have you seen any type of similarities between uh, the accounts from the Cherokee little people and then just, you know, broader kind of paranormal uh, fairy fae folklore? Yeah. I, I, when I wrote my other book, the one that's in the editing now, uh, I found almost every culture, older culture, has some type of little people character in their folklore. Whether it be the little the Hobbit like people that lived in New Zealand or the Pakwedgie like they have over in uh, Hawaii or just different areas, they all have like leprechauns or fairies, different creatures. They're all like little people in all these different cultures. And it seems to me like a lot of the attributes and characteristics of these creatures are like very similar across cultures. And you know, something I always say in a lot of paranormal type stuff is language is a big barrier i think in these sort of things like one person's angel or demon is another person's alien and i think you know in a lot of these little people or pugwudgies or fairies or whatnot we're all talking about the same thing here it's just different people in different places call them something different and different cultures look at them in different ways yeah i agree with them just to add yeah, on to that idea, too, we've been talking about elementals a lot lately, and you made a reference to the little people as far as Cherokee goes being linked to different elements. So that's been another whole thing we've been talking about is spirits of the land and elementals. So it's funny how that kind of connects in with the little people that theoretically they could also be one in the same thing, potentially. Well, it also connects into Spearfinger because Spearfinger had stone skin. And she actually, she actually communicated and, and ran side by side with a lot of the stone men and stuff that were boulders that come to life. For anybody that uh, isn't familiar with the story of her, uh, were you, would you like to share it? Spearfinger? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spearfinger is an interesting character. She is, she's kind of like a shapeshifter and she likes to lure the children out and then she eats their liver. And she cuts it out with this long finger that she has. It has a very sharp point. Well, according to the story that I, I researched and what I was told at Cherokee, the main story was that all these kids are left the village and they was up in the woods playing. They got lost. And they were trying to find their way back to the village. And all of a sudden, this older lady appears from nowhere. And she goes, come, come back to my hut and I'll, I'll take care of you and we'll find your family. So they all start following her, but this one little girl notices something's kind of off with this woman. She gets to looking and she knows she has one longer finger than the other. So she hollers out spear finger, but there's too late because they're already too close to the cabin and the older woman grabs the other kids and she gets away. Uh, she pushes the kids inside the house, the hut and closes the door. The little girl runs, trying to find the village. She runs, she falls down the hill and she rolls into a creek at the bottom of the hill. Well, there was one of the Cherokee warriors there. And he seen the little girl and he realized, hey, this is the chief's daughter. So he takes her back and she tells all about what happened. And uh, the chief has had enough with Spearfinger. He's fed up with her. 
So he talks to the medicine man. The medicine man mixes up a special potion so that their spears and arrows will actually pierce in through her rock skin. So they dip all their stuff, their arrows and their spears into it, and they go up to Hunter. Well, she hears them coming. So she takes off out. She takes off and leaves her hut, and the kids all escape, and they get the kids back. But the warriors are still chasing her. She's running, trying to get away, and she runs upon uh, – as she's crossing the uh, tops of the mountains, she runs into the stone man. She asked him for help. He said, no, 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 I can't help you. You asked for this. Now you've got to pay the price for your sins. But she gets mad, and she blows at him, and she takes off. She falls down in a pit. When she falls down into the pit, all the warriors close in. Well, she falls down the pit, and they all open fire, and it's, things are sparking and everything, but they realize that they're actually piercing her skin with some of the arrows. Now they look, and they figure she's dead, so they all leave. They all go back down to the village. Well, they get back down to the village, and the chief's like, eh, something ain't right. So he sends one of the warriors back up to the pit to make sure she's dead. They get up there. There's blood and arrows, and she's gone. Now, the story is there. She still runs the mountains here in Western North Carolina. She stands over by the Nanahala Gorge area and over by Fontana Lake. There has been reported sightings of her at Fontana Lake. Well, so I had actually never heard this story before. And um, yeah, like we were talking prior to uh, starting filming, you know, um, I'm from North Carolina, have been in the Raleigh area for several years. So, I mean, that's not too far from uh, where you're at. So I think it's interesting that, you know, like you were talking about, you know, keeping these stories alive, this is a story I'd never even heard of. But as you were telling it, it seems like there's a lot of similarities between a lot of other like kind of paranormal and high strangeness events. Like, um, you know, even things like old stories of witches have a lot of similarities to this story. And, you know, even the children missing that can tie into like missing 411 type stuff. Uh, but the thing that I thought was most interesting was you were talking about the stone man. And um, I was just uh, recently reading a series of books uh, about Bigfoot called Where the Footprints End. And kind of the premise of the series of books is they look at Bigfoot legends through the lens of other folklore. And they mentioned in this book that there are Native American legends of Bigfoot type creatures that have, you know, stone skin coverings, whatever you want to call it. So I'm almost wondering if this, you know, stone man who is kind of a protector of the woods or whatever could be an interpretation of a Bigfoot type creature. So I, I don't know if there's any connection there. It's just something that kind of uh, rang bells in my head as you were telling that story. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> See, especially considering that uh, when it comes to a lot of Native American stuff, some stuff is very literal and some stuff is very like metaphorical. So, you know, when they say like stone man, they could even be referring to that as in like the the way the stance of them. So if they're talking about like a big strong man that's like a boulder, you know, it, honestly, they could be referring to it as like Sasquatch. That's true. I mean, yeah, you you both have a good point. And uh, there are stories about where in, the Indians, Native Americans, have shot arrows at Bigfoot and they bounced off. 
Have you heard, uh, at least from like your background with your, your Cherokee heritage, have you heard any like positive stories as far as like Sasquatch goes? Cause I've heard a lot as far like pertaining to, they make a connection with Sasquatch out in the woods and they bestow like knowledge on them of like what's going to be upcoming in the next like year or so as far as like nature and the environment, like, you know, there's going to be random fires over in this area. So this isn't going to be the place to fish and they'll like bestow this like knowledge on them. And it all comes down to this like thing where they will like sing a different a song in their native tongue and it'll lure them into the woods. And then they'll do this thing where they sing a different song and it basically says it's okay to make contact. And they'll do this like finger touch thing where they like touch tips of fingers and then they bestow the knowledge on them after that. But uh, I don't remember exactly what Native American background that came from, but have you heard any stories similar to that? Well, the, the Cherokee call him Sukalu, and the story of him actually talks about he's trying to woo over a woman, but the mother keeps sending him all these different tasks for him to fulfill the task before he can actually marry the woman. So, and I've also heard stories where the Cherokee will speak to the Sukalu and he watches over them and they watch over him as well. It's like a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship they have with each other. They watch over for each other. And uh, they just seem a lot more connected than a lot of the other tribes do with Bigfoot itself. With that Sukalu, that's what they, like I said, that's what they call him, the Cherokee do. Now, as far as the touching the fingers, I don't, I ain't heard any of that yet. So that's a new one on me. <laughs> I'm always curious as far as like the language goes, because a lot of people say that, uh, like there's a lot, there's a lot of stories pertaining to people speaking different Cherokee languages or different, uh, Native American languages to Sasquatch and then actually responding back to it. So if there's something that's been around theoretically longer than like the people have been, as far as like North America goes, I often wonder if Native American language could have been influenced from Sasquatch language and they were the ones that kind of like taught them how to live in the land, how to farm the land, how to like deal with the land and survive in the land because there, there was the weird combination of what was it? Pumpkins, corn and beans. And with that combination, everything was able to like keep itself safe and like sustain itself. Mm -hmm. Well, I, my theory about Bigfoot's a little different. Uh, my theory runs that Bigfoot is actually the descendant of the giants that were here. And when the Native Americans crossed over the land bridge into America, there's tons and tons of stories from all the different tribes that crossed over that way, where they run into what they call the white giants. And uh, especially right in this area, the Choctaw joined together with other tribes and attacked the giants. And they supposedly killed them off, but with all the caves and everything else in this area, I mean, you figure all the caves around the mountains here and then up in Kentucky, get the mammoth cave. That would have escaped into the caves and into the mammoth caves. And there's a big gap between when they first talk about the giants and when they first talk about the Sukaloo or Bigfoot or Sasquatch. There's like a 500-year gap in between there where it would actually – Evolutionary wise, it would actually account for them semi devolving when they're covered with hair and everything else. Plus, the fact that they found a giant cave out in Nevada that had sandals and everything, and they took a Bigfoot casting and it fit perfectly. 
See, I wonder so, if that pertains to some of the caves that they supposedly like pushed the giant races into and then burned them. I wonder if like some of these giant races were Sasquatch or if they were a different uh, subcategory of Sasquatch that were maybe a little bit less hairless and more violent, possibly. Well, I, I, that's why I lean towards the giants actually devolving into the Sasquatch. They, I mean, they still have the same characteristics. They still walk upright. They still have the same facial type features, the wide nose, the deep set eyes, you know, the strong forehead, strong chin, no neck. Same as what the giants would have had at that period of time, except they're covered with hair. Well, the giants had hair on them because they were wild, but they didn't have as much hair and they actually lived in the open areas where they had to have fire and they wore, uh, you know, primitive clothing. But since I ran into the caves, they didn't have all those options. By evolutionary standards, they would have grown more hair and adapted more to the dark. I think that's a really fascinating theory, and I've never really thought about Sasquatch in those terms before, but I think it makes a lot of sense uh, when you talk about like the Bering Land Bridge and whatnot, because you know a lot of people who have heard Sasquatch vocalizations say that they sound almost uh, Asian. And, you know, even like the Sierra sounds with Ron Moorhead, you know, they, they call them the samurai sounds. So if these creatures did come over the land bridge from, you know, the Far East, Asia, somewhere like that, I think that accounts for a lot of these type of connections and also why many Native American cultures seem to have such rich Sasquatch legends. So yeah. I think that's a really good theory that kind of connects a lot of dots and fills in a lot of holes. So I, I think that's awesome. <laughs> so uh, as far as like Cherokee stuff goes, uh, I always like to dig into Thunderbird stories because I definitely find them fascinating. So uh, at least from the elders that you were referring to, uh, have they shared any Thunderbird stories with you? Not many. They There are certain things that they just won't talk about. They talked about, uh, with a lot of urging, they talked about the little people. With a lot of urging, they talked about the raven mocker. Raven mocker too scares them to death because it's a, it's a it basically is a shape shifting witch that warns them that somebody's about to die. So, but I mean, they never talk about the thunderbirds. They never talk about uh, some of the other stuff I've looked into. But the Thunderbirds seem to be a thing. It's a touchy subject with certain tribes. Like out west, they talk about them a lot when I hear. Say the Ravenmocker, just uh, you made a reference to that. That sounded pretty uh, Mothman-esque to me as far as like, uh, you know, forewarning of something that's bad that's about to happen. Uh, maybe that's another connection kind of leading into it because I know that there's like the uh, the Cornstalk connection as far as like Mothman goes, where people think that he cursed the land and brought this creature upon the land, but uh, maybe it's a little bit more in depth than that. That it's actually some uh, Native American folklore creature that uh, isn't brought on because of the traumatic events that he tried to curse the land, but rather it's something that like existed in the area. And when traumatic events happen, it's almost like a moth to a light that it's just attracted to them. That sounds pretty cool. I do think that the Mothman is a herald warning you something bad is going to happen because even like the Blackbird of Chernobyl was actually the exact description of Mothman. 
Say the Blackbird, so, that's another good one too. I haven't, uh, we, I, that's one I'm planning on hopefully doing an episode about in the future. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that one was, was, that was seen more than once too, right? It wasn't just around the Chernobyl disaster. It's been seen other times since then. It has, but Chernobyl, it was, I believe if I remember right, it was seen five separate times before the meltdown by multiple people. I mean, 10, 15 people actually seen it there. And then it's been, and the, but the description fit Mothman perfect. Then you had the bridge up in West Virginia where the Mothman, that's the most famous one for him. Uh, there was a, a report of a ship that went missing. And right before the ship went missing, they reported seeing this thing in the sky. I, uh, I've even heard uh, accounts of people talking about Mothman sightings like prior to 9 11. So I haven't, seen a whole lot of uh you know information to back that up but it's something i've run across a couple times um but just kind of uh piggybacking off of everything we've been talking about a question i had for you um and i think this legend kind of comes from your neck of the woods uh do you know anything about the moon-eyed people that's more of a like kentucky area type Uh, okay yeah I've heard about it. I haven't done a lot of research on it, uh, but it's from what I understand, it was due to like a melon. They're almost like the melon head people had a lot to do with inbreeding and stuff. And okay. Kind no, of that was, uh, just something I had run across and I couldn't remember exactly where the location was. So I figured it was worth asking you. It was, it's been one of those. So I, I never really got into it because I was doing all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. That's one of those. You're in here going, Okay, these people are eating people and they have big eyes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, couldn't see during the day. <laughs> yeah, they, they run around at night. That's, that's that nickname, I, from what I understand. I, I, I said I hadn't, hadn't researched that in much. No, I hadn't either, but uh, that's pretty much the little bit of understanding I have about it as well. So. Now, the, the black eyes kids was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You studied that, I'm sure. Yeah, um, I've actually heard quite a bit about that and um all of our uh, buddies um cryptids of the corn podcast they did an episode recently about uh the black-eyed children and there was actually a sighting not too long ago like right down the road from where we live and uh they were talking about you know possible connections between like men in black and things like that so uh yeah the black-eyed children is definitely something that i think is really interesting and kind of connects to a lot of other paranormal phenomena yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with that. Speaking of a paranormal phenomenon, before it gets too far away from it, I have a new Mothman theory I want to share with you guys. So okay. we're talking about, we've talked about it a bunch of times on the show, but the whole idea of like a residual haunting, that there's a traumatic event that happens in an area and it's so traumatic that it echoes through time and it just replays through time. So <laughs> it seems like the, the you know, all these different blackbird uh, Mothman type of creatures are always seen around places that something traumatic like this happens. So potentially if a traumatic event causes a residual haunting and it causes a ripple in time, could that ripple potentially be thinning the veil in other areas where we have things like Mothmen that are flying through almost like a, like a time slip rather than them being like attracted to something bad happening. It's more so that that traumatic event happening in that area causes a thinning of the of the veil and then they unintentionally kind of come through because of the traumatic event that's already happening in that area 
that's a pretty good theory. I like it. It makes a lot of sense too. It really does. See, I figured I'd uh, share that one before I got too far away from it. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. I mean, we all have to take our guesses at it. That's pretty good. I like that. So, uh, (laughs) so, uh, pretending back to the, the Cherokee stuff, of course, uh, have you done anything as far as, uh, I believe it's pronounced Uctena? It's the, uh, antlered, uh, serpents. No, I hadn't. I pretty much stuck with just about five of them because I had so much to do. I had like, I also did the Sioux. I also did the, uh, Inuit people. And I did, um, uh, the Hopi. Now you want to talk about symbolism and stuff and long stories. The Hopi have those and you'd love those. That's if you get the book, Read the Hopi stories. There's only three of them because they're so long, but it's full of symbolism and they're fun to read. But uh, I concentrated on certain groups and I only did like five or six that I really didn't want to overwhelm anybody because there's so many in the, in the in Native American stories. Everything has a story behind it. And it makes sense that they would do it that way, but Lord have mercy. Their stories, when they tell the stories everybody except for like uh, the Hopi or there's another one. The, every one of the stories they tell, they tell the same way. Like if they told you a story when their ancestors first created a story, then it would be the same way now. They never have any variation to their stories. It stays exactly the same all the way through. Say when it comes to stories that are word of mouth, that's like one of my biggest fears as far as like losing stories because you hear a lot about you've even made a reference to it about how a lot of uh, Cherokee or different uh, Native Americans don't want to talk about specific stories or specific creatures, but it definitely plays a big part as far as like their folklore goes. So just off of that, it makes me wonder how many names of creatures we've lost along the way, how much more details we would have of creatures if these stories were actually written down. And even just like that, the, the word of mouth, when they keep them exactly to the T, as far as time goes back, it's still a matter of they can keep it exactly to a T, but if the last person that knows that story passes away, then that story is lost forever, even though they spent that much time trying to make sure that this, they kept the story to exactly what it came from. And the fact that the stories have such a strong effect on them that the, some of them they won't even tell. And that, that, that also hurts as far as passing the story down when you won't tell the story because you're scared of it because of the symbolism of the story. Then if it's not passed down, you lose that. And you know, the, the young generation don't know to be afraid of it. I'm surprised that we got Skinwalker or Wendigo. I figured that those two would have been one that nobody wanted to mention. They would have got lost in time. Like again, makes me wonder how many more creatures there are that are like that, that didn't get mentioned that again could fill in more gaps that we're trying to figure out. And we're just trying to pertain everything into either being a skinwalker or a Wendigo or some type of like native American witch. Cause that's what everything seems to kind of relate to. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You're exactly right. So, uh, George, a theory I've kind of been kicking around here recently is, you know, a, a lot of times in paranormal cases, mm-hmm. it seems like Indian burial grounds are like, uh, just, you know, an easy thing to blame everything on. If anything weird happens, oh, it's an Indian burial ground. I'm wondering if it's possible that 
you know, these Indian burial grounds and even sacred places, churches and whatnot, uh, megalithic structures all over the world. I wonder if these places were built on sites where there was already strange energies or maybe the veil was thinner and these weird things are happening not because of the Indian burial ground, but the Indian burial ground is there because strange things are already happening, kind of like a chicken and the egg type situation. Now, I believe that they, the, the Indians picked the burial grounds because of exactly what you're saying. There was some kind of energy there, and that's why they used it for their burial grounds, because they felt energy. Now, as far as the churches and stuff like that, I don't think it, there is much tied into it like the Indians and stuff are, mm-hmm. because I just don't think that they have the connections. I think right, right. The Indians were front, lived on the land, and they actually absorbed the areas of the land where they were at. And they actually the land. So I think that's why they were able to feel the different energies that were on that land. Because if you have like certain rocks and certain crystals that are natural to that area, you're going to have a differences in your energy feeling. Like granite has stores lots and lots of energy and power where if it's sandstone, you ain't going to have it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think a lot of the Indian burial ground stuff were up on high ridges and stuff. Because that's where the granite and more energy-bearing rocks and stuff would be. And what's interesting about that is in a lot of cultures, you know, they say that going up on mountains and things like that are how you commune with the gods. So that makes perfect sense as far as, you know, there's minerals or, you know, crystals or whatnot that are these energy conductors. Well, granite tracks lightning real well. (laughs) (laughs) So when it pertains to uh, like the Native American burial burial mounds, not just like the Native American like burial or burial sites, but the actual mounds, there's all these like weird laws and things where you can't actually dig them up, of course. And like it seems like more often than not, they're more than happy to move a Native American burial ground, but they never want to do anything with like the mounds. So just a weird theory again, throwing it in here. Like, what if they know that all of these mounds are actually Sasquatch graves? And that's the reason why they tell you not to tamper with them and not to mess with them. Because again, that weird divide kind of throws me off that they'll tear apart a burial ground, but they won't tear apart a mound. Like wh- why, where's the difference in there where they see one is more important than the other? Well, you know, they've, they've tried, they've tried, they've tried, they've tried to keep giants away from history. I think the burial mounds are actually the giants and the Indians were paying tribute them and that's what they did they buried them in those mounds as a tribute to the giants because there was a guy who did a he got permission from the tribe themselves and he went with a uh this ground penetrating radar and from what i seen of it it looked like a giant body inside the burial mound with that thing and that's what i think they're, they're there for and the government's been trying to keep that stuff away from us. And they said, well, you know, no, there's no giants, but there's giants now. There's giants today because the definition of a giant is anyone over seven feet tall. Hell, the NBA's full of giants. <laughs> <laughs> Andre the Giant was over seven feet tall. Goliath from David and Goliath was over seven feet tall. <laughs> and the thing I think is really interesting about the whole giants aspect is that kind of gets back to 
you know, stories of, you know, the Anunnaki and the Nephilim and things like that. And could these have really been some kind of intermediate beings between extraterrestrials and human beings? And, you know, these ideas of, um, you know, the, the sons of the gods lying with the daughters of man. So I think if you look at it through that lens, it makes a lot of sense why people would want to suppress that information. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're probably right on that. Well, if you look at, like I said, the history of Dogman, you know, Dogman, most people only think it goes back to 1958, but there's stories about Dogman that goes all the way back into ancient times. Mm-hmm. Even if you look at, uh, was Anubis, was even a Dogman, basically, with a, with a big hat. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> we're actually working on a uh, Dogman series that uh, we're going to start. Uh, publishing some of the episodes here recently. And uh, that's something that Jenny, you've done a little bit of research about like this idea with like Anubis and then um, what's the, the statue um, Romulus and Remus. So, yeah. So like these connections between like dog man and these ancient, you know, legends and lore. So I think that's really interesting that you brought that up. Well, my new book actually talks about where they found there is actually written, uh, accounts of an entire tribe of dog men in India. Mm-hmm. And it's all historical fact from what written down from an explorer there. Even going into like Cherokee stuff, uh, or not Cherokee, but what, what was it? Was it the Sioux or the Shawnee? Something like that. It was one of the ones that begins with an S. Uh, they had a section called like the Dogman Warriors, and there's this thing that's almost like a, like a skinwalker lore that kind of is based around them where pretty much these warriors became so in tune with with the wild dogs that they would go and live with the wild dogs and then eventually they get to a point where they'd become one with the animal so much that they could wear its skin and become the animal itself but they'd be like the half human half animal being so i mean even going into like just native american stuff there's folklore based around werewolf type being slash dogman type being it's just not labeled the same way it was like dogman warriors so it's probably something that could easily get kind of misconstrued and kind of lost in in the you know giant plethora of information that we have thanks to the internet <laughs> yeah but i'm actually my my first podcast i'm when i bring come back in mark i'm actually going to talk about dogman werewolf and hellhounds the difference between them and the origins of each one of those creatures Hellhounds is something that I've always uh, been fascinated by too. Where uh, was there reference to hellhounds being like, uh, I guess, like retrieval dogs previous to uh, Robert Johnson? Hmm. because uh, of course they were like protectors of like gates and hell. But I, I don't know if there's actually reference them like retrieving like a soul back to the underworld before that. There was stories. But they never referred to them. I don't think they referred to them exactly as hellhounds. I'm trying to remember what the exact name was. But yeah, there was a references in some of the earlier writings that were come out of uh, some of the early Christian writings that come out of Ethiopia and all that out there about uh, retrieval hounds from hell, pulling back souls that had escaped. And that, uh, ah, crap, I can't remember now. Ah, I can't believe I forgot that. It was a cool story. I'll, I'll think about it. <laughs> oh, it, it's to me, I'm sure. 
because it was a really cool story because uh, they had tricked Satan to get out of hell. And they they thought they had escaped and they were down by a riverbed and they could hear the hounds of the hounds coming after them, the retrieval hounds. But they couldn't see them. They could hear them cutting through the woods. They could hear them cutting through the water, but they couldn't see them. Then it talked about how they ran and ran and ran and and then eventually the hellhounds grabbed them and drug them, kicking and screaming back into the earth, back into Satan's dominion. See, I've uh, kind of had some theories on it. If it became more prevalent because of the whole like people selling their souls aspect, where you know you get into some of like the lore based around like Lucifer himself, and they say that you know he was made of music himself. So I've kind of had some potential theories that in order for him to like potentially bestow music talent on somebody, or you know, it's a lot of like with the music stuff, like people selling their soul, he would essentially have to give him give piece of himself to them. And after a set amount of time, you'd have to retrieve those pieces. So then I feel like that's kind of where the hellhound aspect became more prevalent in modern day folklore is mainly just because of the music component playing a factor in it and them retrieving those contracts back. Where before that, I feel like because of people just being a lot more heavily influenced by, you know, like the light side of religion, they were a lot more scared to be making soul contracts. (laughs) Yeah. I, that's a good theory. I, it, it sounds pretty good. I like it. And I mean, even, I like even going into that, though, I mean, potentially, I mean, y- you you tell somebody that they sold their soul, but if you kind of follow the biblical th- aspect of things, I don't think it's potentially possible to sell your soul. So I feel like more so when people make these soul contracts, it's more so that they're getting tricked into thinking like, oh, I'm going to hell regardless of what I do. So it was never that they were damned in the first place, but because they think they're damned, they're more willing to do all these awful things that in turn will make it so that they become damned. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's pretty good. I'd sell mine, but I wouldn't get about a dollar fifty. So, you know, it's not worth it. <laughs> 20 bucks, 20 bucks. <laughs> I mean, with inflation now, he might get out with that. Yeah. <laughs> Once I took taxes out, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for the first half of the show, we definitely have uh, kind of bounced around and covered a lot of your first book. But uh, as far as your second book goes, you said that you're going international with it. So uh, what are some of the uh, most fascinating stories you found internationally uh, that you're, you'd like to share for the show? Oh, uh, wow. I got some good ones. I did, Of course, I did a lot of Nest Monster because I was threatened if I don't do the popular monsters. Don't bother. <laughs> so, you know, I did. Uh, I got the Banshee in there. I got Loch Ness monster. I've got. Let's see here. Oh, I don't know where we went to it. There it is. I've got some. I got all kinds of cool ones. There were some fun ones, and there's a tree in South America. There's a cryptid monster. That if you get too close to it, it eats you. Is that the one that almost looks like a Venus flytrap? Because I think there was is the Madagascar man eater or something may be another like offshoot of kind of the same concept, but it looks almost it like a giant Venus flytrap. It's it's kind of funky looking. It from the picture that I I found of it, I got it on a public website, public domain website. It looks almost like a big apple tree with an attitude. <laughs> Pulls you in with its fruits. <laughs> yeah. But I have the like the dragon. I have like the death worm. The Capa, which is a cool one. And all these are uh, like over in Asia. The Jin, 
You know, I don't know. You know, gin's not evil or good. It's neutral. It can decide what it wants to be. There's a lot of folklore that goes into those guys as far as like them not necessarily being evil until people started trying to trap them. And then that's where like the genie folklore comes into being trapped in a bottle is because people yeah. found ways to do it. And then that's when they angered the gin. And then that's when they started having all these bad encounters with the gin. <laughs> yeah. And isn't there a lot of uh, connections between the gin and kind of trickster poltergeist type activity? Not that I found, but I'm sure that okay. it would I'm sure that it would cross over because you're dealing with a supernatural creature versus a evil spirit. I mean, uh, they, I'm sure they walk down the same road. Beyond, uh, no, it just seemed like that's something I had heard somebody say at one point in time that, you know, a lot of these attributes that people, you know, give to poltergeist, it's kind of very similar to gin type behavior, but I haven't had a chance to dig into the gin super in depth. So well, now, I will say that most of my stories that I put in there, I didn't give a super lot of depth to it. Basically, what I wanted to do is give you an idea about the monster mm-hmm. and were there any sightings. Of course, I had 20-something encounters sent to me. Wow. Or my people on Facebook, they sent these encounters. So I put their encounters in the book. And you guys are going to love those. I got some Dogman encounters. I got an encounter with Old Shuck. You know who Old Shuck is? I don't think so. A London version of a hellhound. It's black wolf with red eyes. Oh, so it's like the the black dogs, right? Or is that kind of the same thing? As I remember hearing about like the English black dogs. That's it. That's it. And uh, I have, oh, I had some good ones. I had bunches and bunches of Bigfoot in the United States. I had, um, I had four or five from the UK, and the rest of them was from the United States. But there's some great Bigfoot encounters in there. There's some Dogman encounters in there. There's some Pterodactyl encounters in there. There's, like I said, Old Shuck in there. There's some good ones. I hope you guys will enjoy them. Oh, I'm sure we will. But I I was so thankful. I felt really honored because the people that sent them to me trusted me enough to tell their story. And that actually meant more to me than writing the book did. (laughs) Well, I think that's so important and almost therapeutic for people being able to tell their story and having a safe outlet and knowing, you know, you can tell the story to, you know, people like yourself and they're not going to be thought that they're crazy. And I think that is what's so beautiful about the paranormal community is the more people can talk and share their stories, the better off we're all going to be. And I don't think we're ever going to find rock solid you know, evidence or answers to a lot of this stuff. But if we are, it's going to be from sharing and from people talking and not everyone being so segmented, I feel. Well, uh, you were talking about Cryptid in the Corn a while ago? Yes, sir. Justin? Well, Justin's yes. got a story in it. Oh, really? Yeah. He said foot story? I actually interviewed him and got the story, and I had to translate our recording into the story for him. <laughs> That's awesome. Shout he's out cool to Justin. <laughs> yeah, he's a good dude. Great guy, man. He really is. And he's going to be a dad here pretty soon. That's even yes. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Happy for him. I'm going to be a grandpa again, so I understand. Well, We're, congrats. Weirdly enough, we too, got, funny story. The only reason that all of us ended up meeting each other was also through Justin. <laughs> oh, really? Yep. That's awesome. That's cool. I love it. I love it. I, I'm weird. <laughs> Well, you're in the right place then. <laughs> I did put the walk apes in there. 
from Vietnam. Okay. And I put in uh, the giant of Kandor. We had actually uh, kicked around the idea of doing a giant of Kandahar, like kind of mini episode. Yeah. So we recently it's did one cool. called uh, the Bisa Bande, which is basically like a like an ape man that was seen in Japan. And the weird part about it um, was the fact that there was a bunch of issues with people going missing, people hearing him scream at night. So they went and they paid this hunter to go and take him down and he supposedly took it down brought it in and everybody saw it everybody and this was back in the 1600s they didn't have a way to like preserve the body or anything so there's no like physical evidence of it of it past this but uh there was no more encounters after this guy supposedly brought this ape creature in and the whole town saw it and clarified that it was like this ape creature with like web fingers oh cool (laughs) i've read that pretty cool i like that might be a good one to do uh, in a future book, especially if you're already covering Japan, because you know, like the Kappa too. That's another one that kind of pl- falls into the same kind of realm as folk realm of folklore as uh, the Bisa Bande. And weirdly enough, that's how I found that story was because I was looking stuff up about Kappas. <laughs> you gotta love the Kappa. I mean, he's a pervert. Yeah, how can you not like a half turtle guy or a turtle guy that watches the women bathe? I mean, you know, I'm a dirty old man, so you know, it's well. <laughs> You also, uh, you got to protect your butthole. Otherwise, he'll pull your soul out of your butthole. That's <laughs> That's just good advice across the board. <laughs> <laughs> the best part about him, though, is that you can trick him with a bow. And after he bows, he dumps his bowl of water on his head from his native pond that he came from. Then he has no power after that. So very dangerous. We'll suck your soul out of your butthole. But if you get him to bow, powerless. <laughs> You got him in. <laughs> How can you not like him? I mean, it's just a great creature. <laughs> it's yeah. it's very Japanese at its components that it's weirdly has a sexual component to it, but at the same time, it's very proper. <laughs> yeah, very proper and easily beaten. <laughs> I mean, come on now. I mean, it's just wonderful. <laughs> Even going in more into like the whole weird, dirty aspect of it, the whole thing with cucumbers, <laughs> that they really enjoy cucumbers, that a lot of people would carry around cucumbers in their pockets when they're walking up and down rivers, thinking that if they saw a kappa, that they could throw it in a direction and deteriorate or give it as a gift to the kappa so that it wouldn't yep. come after them. So I just imagine people back in, you know, like the 15, 1600s, just regularly carrying <laughs> fucking cucumbers in their pockets while walking up and down the river. <laughs> Is that a cucumber in your pocket to protect you from a cat bar, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> That's what she Why said. Why not both? <laughs> <laughs> Finally got a chance to use those, and it was perfect. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We've been waiting for months for this opportunity. <laughs> got to tell a joke. Yay! <laughs> we have a good time over around here on Bizarre Encounters. That's uh, that's all we can do. <laughs> I like it. I like it. It's always good to have fun. That's all I'm saying. I should turn this into like a life advice column. Like, pay your taxes and don't let your soul get sucked out of your butthole. And carry a cucumber. <laughs> yes. At all Never um, known a cucumber let- in the pocket might come in handy. So, uh, kind of going back to your books a bit, too. Um, this one, of course, is going to be coming out uh, super soon. So, one, do you have a title for it so that people know what to look out for? And then on the horizon, do you already have some new ideas of something else you might be working on next? 
Well, the book come hopefully the book come out. I have a working title of Monsters of the World Reference Guide. Nice, plain and simple, so it's easy to figure out. And it should be. I'm hoping it'll be end up being around 150, 200 pages, somewhere in that area. This the book I have out now, Legends. It's 590 pages. Oh wow! So, <laughs> I'm I'm cutting it down a little bit for y'all, <laughs> but I'm hoping. I'm I'm not sure, but I'm leaning towards writing a either a science fiction story or a horror or both, doing two separate stories at one time. So, uh, what's a I guess if you kind of have like a basic concept of what what it might be kind of working towards, just kind of hint at it for the uh, the listeners so that they can keep an eye out if it does sound like something that would spark their interest. Well, the sci-fi is about it's called Adventures of John Armstrong. It's kind of like uh, the main character. His name is John Armstrong, of course. Well, he, uh, let's see, how can I put it? He's kind of a mix between John Wick and Star-Lord. <laughs> <laughs> he, has a, he has a sidekick, which I can't tell you about the sidekick right now. Ooh. But he has actually a crew of people that works on his ship. And he does contracts for a, a, a corporation. And the horror story is one that I've had in my head for probably 30 years. It's called No Dose, The Bastard Clown. <laughs> you already got me and sold. <laughs> he, he, he's evil. I mean, and it tells how he becomes the, the evil creature he is. So I'm all in on the uh, Bastard Clown. Yeah, <laughs> that's he, what I'm saying. Uh, he's kind of rough. <laughs> I so come up with and, uh, put us on the waiting list for that one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, uh, in the hopes or in light of the normal uh, bizarre encounters way of doing things, uh, we always okay. like to bring in if anybody's had any weird experiences themselves, be it with cryptids, the paranormal, UFOs, anything like that. So, do you have any personal experiences that you'd like to share? Well, I have had two UFO sightings, and I've dealt with ghosts a lot. So, I'm I'm still looking for my cryptid encounter. I'm looking for that big time, big with Bigfoot. But uh, I died one time, so I've seen the other side of the veil for a short period of time. So I'm open more to certain areas with the ghost, like I can hear them, and sometimes I can see them. And I can be driving down the road by myself and I hear something look over. There'll be a body standing sitting beside me in the seat for a second or two. Of somebody who had died in that area in an auto crash. Wow. And well, my first experience with a ghost, I was in my teens and I was in my room. I was asleep. About I, I, I'm thinking three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, something like that. Good old witching hour. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure <laughs> but I felt something and I woke up and my great grandmother was sitting on the end of my bed and I could smell her perfume so I knew it was her and I could see her sitting there and I asked her what she was doing there and she said I come by to tell you bye and I love you so she told me and I said okay she said just go on back to sleep now well, I fell back asleep and woke up. 
and found out my grandmother, my great grandmother, had passed away the next day. So it was almost like she passed away and made contact with you directly after, and then yeah. you found out the following day that this has already happened. So she was already like gone by the time you would have seen her, right? Right. Whew. And uh, I thought it was a dream. I thought I'd been dreaming, but then I went back into my room and I could still smell perfume. Hmm. That's crazy. And after I had died and come back, I've got more every now and then, and not as much now as it did back when it actually ha- happened, but I can still see the ghosts and I can still hear them talk to me and stuff like that every now and then. So that I've never had a scary experience with a ghost. Had some issues with shadow people and a demon before, but never with ghosts. I would definitely love to dig into this shadow person and demon experience, but this near-death experience, <laughs> you got me caught up on that. When you went to the other side, what did you see exactly? Because everybody that's ever had this experience, I, I have to ask this question. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm sure everybody's tired of hearing my story, but I'll tell you anyway. <laughs> I haven't heard it, so you're falling upon new ears. So. <laughs> I got pneumonia and I got it really bad and went to the doctor and they told me I got some first. I didn't know what they were talking about, which was obvious later on. They told me I had bronchitis. Well, I went home and was treating the bronchitis and I got worse and worse and worse. I had over 104 fever. I was lethargic. I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't move my head. So they forced me to go to the hospital they enforced me, carried me and stuck me in the car and took me to the hospital. And uh, got to the hospital. They run me into the emergency and they were freaking out. They got me up in a room finally and they was loading me up with all kinds of medicine and all this stuff. My lungs were half filled with fluid. So I wasn't breathing real well anyway. Uh, that night, it was midnight, somewhere around that area. And I woke up. And everything felt calm and cool and just comfortable. The most comfortable feeling I've ever had. And I looked over and there's a woman standing beside my bed. She's an older woman. And she was just as sweet as she could be. And she said, it's okay, honey. Don't worry. It's okay. And I said, well, who are you? And she told me who she was. So I sat up in the bed and I felt really odd. So like something wasn't quite right. And I looked at the clock and the clock was completely stopped. The second hand wasn't moving or anything. It was completely just nothing. And I looked behind me and my body was still in the bed. So I jumped up and she said, it's okay. It's fine. So I was talking to her and people started walking through the walls of my bedroom, of my room and in the hospital. And they would come in and they would introduce yourself and talk to me. And I was you know, talking to everybody just like I am now and looked over in the corner, this dark corner. And there was a, a figure standing there. It looked like an angel had wings, but I couldn't really see anything. But the blue eyes had the bluest, prettiest blue eyes you've ever seen in your life. And he was standing over there and all these people kept coming in my room and they got about eight people, 10 people in there. And he raised his hand up, and this little white dot showed up on the wall. And all of a sudden, it went poof, and it was just this big hole of light in my room. And all these people started telling me, bye, and walk into this light. And it was just me and her 
me and that lady there. And I thought, well, hell, I'm going to go to the light, too. I started towards the light. She grabbed me. She said, no, 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 no. Not your time. You need to lay back down. And I said, well, okay. I went over and sat down on the bed. And I went. I laid back down, but then I sat up again and looked at her, and she waved at me. And she smiled, and she walked through the light, and he dropped his arm down, and the light disappeared. And he disappeared. So I looked at the clock and it still hadn't moved. So I laid back down and next thing I know, there was alarms going off, people running into my room and and they was starting all this stuff. I looked at them, I said, what is wrong with y'all? And they all stopped. <laughs> and she said, what? <laughs> I said, what is wrong with y'all? They said, you was in bad shape. I said, I'm fine. Now I said, and by the way, who is, I named the woman that was in there. I said her name, and they all stopped and looked at me, and one of the women went, you can see the color just flush out of her skin. And she said, I'll tell you in a minute. Everybody left, and she told me, and I described and I named every single person that came into my room, and every one of those people had died in the hospital. The woman that was in there had died in the room before I got there. Wow. Your experience is uh, a lot different than a lot of the experiences that I've heard because you didn't see like uh, like heaven, like the other side. You saw like another reality existing on top of that, rea- on top of our reality, like the like the paranormal realm. And I don't know, it just makes it that much more fascinating, especially the fact that you were you saw people that everybody else at the hospital had seen pass away so it just brings in a different factor especially if you were a young kid like there's no way that you would have known those things so I was in my, what was that yeah I was, a, I was in my 20s oh in your 20s okay i was probably i don't know 22 23 years old somewhere in that area i mean either way though regardless you wouldn't have had any idea about any of those people so even if it doesn't yeah. bring anything to anybody else like at least it can bring a real uh, like a real ras- rationalization of it to you yourself in your head oh yeah i mean i i can honestly say without any doubt whatsoever there is an afterlife because i've seen it and i can tell you the angel has a blue eyes it was uh, it was such a feeling what it was going on i never was excited i never got scared i was probably the calmest i've ever been in my entire life Everything was just like it should be. The smell of the air, the feeling of the air, the people coming. I usually don't like a lot of people being around me, but it was comfortable having all them people coming in and talking to me before they left. Wow. (laughs) So going into, uh, I guess, the other parts of the story, is there like like a link to it that... Did you end up having your demon experience like soon after this when the veil was already kind of like thinned and you were kind of able to see a little bit more? Or was this, did the demon experience happen like a little bit later on? Oh, it happened a little while later. Uh, A friend of mine had bought a house or was living in a house. And the house had been around since the late 1700s, early 1800s. And he told me, he said, we walked, you walked into the house, it felt cold. No matter what the heat was on, whatever, it still felt, you still had that deep feeling cold to it. He said, you got to see this. And uh, you got to realize, he, has a, he had a rock wilder that was probably close to 200 pounds. <laughs> and we went downstairs, 
and in the basement, this was all original with the house. In the basement, there was homemade uh, prison cells. Well, they dug back in the bank and put bars on it and doors. And apparently something about the people lived there, tortured and killed some people. And that's why this stuff was down there. <laughs> and you you could just feel this this thing the whole time. And at one point, we could see something moving. You couldn't make out what it was, but you could see it moving. And the dog even started whining and trying to get it back upstairs. And you just had a feeling you didn't want to be there anymore. My um, my aunt um, restored a plantation from the late 1800s, and it was very much like that. And you talking about the basement, it, it kind of just made me think of something. There was a basement. There was a door to the basement. Mm-hmm. I don't remember ever going down to it, but I know that I had to have. So... But there were rooms in it that were more cold than others. But what what happened with the demon? I'm super curious. Well, it, it not necessarily that it did, did anything. It's just the feeling that you got when it was around. Right. I mean, shadow, I, I, the shadow people, they seem to screw with you. Excuse my language. I'm sorry. That's probably wasn't the right word to say. But they, they want to mess with it. They say just out of your vision or they'll move. You can watch a shadow move up a wall. It just kind of creeps you out, or 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 catch you outside your eye and you look and it's gone. That happened to me over my high school because my high school was haunted. Imagine that, <laughs> and it was built where they they dug a graveyard up and put the school there. They didn't get all the bodies up, and they went to build in the the band area. And when they scooped it up, the first scoop they picked up had bodies hanging from the scoop. <laughs> so they had to drop those down and get somebody else in to move more bodies out of the way. But uh, they always had that shadow people thing going on over my high school, Irwin High School. Did so? So that happened in high school. Did did that ever like transfer like to your home, or did it ever escalate? Any okay? No, I knew, I did live in a place that was haunted. Uh, the property I had lived in a trailer. We bought a trailer. I lived in a trailer park when my kids were first born. And where the trailer, my my, my trailer actually sat, there was, I researched it out and found out there was a homestead there. Had a, a daughter around 16, 17 years old, a 10 year old little boy, and a mom and dad that all died of tuberculosis. And they found them after they'd already died. Now, the parent, I never seen the parents, but the the daughter, I called her Bertha. She was great. I loved her. But the little boy would mess with you. You'd be sitting there watching TV and you'd see a face looking in the window. When you looked at it directly, it wasn't there anymore. Or you'd hear somebody tapping on the side of the house and then stop. And you could hear like a kid laughing every now and then. But Bertha <laughs> loved her. Uh, my daughter was crying one night. And I heard her crying and she was upset. So I got up and I went to go find out what was wrong with her. And I walk in and I look and her, and her blanket is doing this number. Oh, somebody's patting it. You could hear, shh, 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 shh. it's okay. Shh, 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 shh. 
in a female voice. And I was like, okay, I'm going nuts. So <laughs> I just kind of left it and didn't really think it much about it. Well, she kept showing herself every time the kids were upset or something happened to the kids. She made an appearance and, and calmed them down when they were really little. So I just, I let her live there because she was wonderful. <laughs> and then my wife and I divorced and I had brought another woman in and she didn't like her. So <laughs> she terrorized her. I was at work and I could just frantic phone calls. She's freaking out. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And I had thrown like 10 pennies on the table before I went to work because I didn't want to carry change. And Bertha would slide the pennies across the table and drop them on the floor and land them on the edge. She got pictures of it. And the, the coin would roll all the way across the floor and stop, turn 90 degrees and roll over and fall over heads up. All 10 pennies come off the table and, and she made a complete perfect circle with those pennies heads up. The girl left. <laughs> well, she clearly wasn't welcome. <laughs> I love Bertha. She was she washed out for me. So you know, some people got uh, emotional baggage. Other people have paranormal baggage. <laughs> <laughs> oh lordy! I'm sorry. It can never be. You exist in a different reality than me. <laughs> Stop it! It's cold. <laughs> we'll go there. Never mind. You just need a pocket full of cucumbers, and then it'll be good. <laughs> Just throw it at it. That, that'll that'll call it. that'll that'll help. <laughs> at least keep it busy and, for a while. <laughs> and so the two F, two big UFO things I had I had a was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. I was in the Navy, and we were crossing over and from here went over towards uh, the Canary Islands. And uh, it was in the middle of the ocean, and I seen the the forward lookout reported to me on the port side, I said, look, there's something out there. And about eight miles away from where we were at, there was, I pulled the, my binoculars up and I could see lights. And the lights were above the water and they were moving back and forth. When I first saw them, I thought, that's got to be a, a submarine con tower. But it didn't touch the water, so it couldn't have been. <laughs> and it was moving back and forth like this. And we watched it for about five minutes. And the Ford look guy got tired of looking at it. So he started watching back in front of us again. And this thing got real bright and shot straight up in the air and disappeared. Wow. So, and then me and my wife are coming back from Chicago. And he got a cat. And uh, at about 30,000 feet, we seen, or she seen it first. She said, what is that? I looked out the window and away from the airplane, there was a silver tube moving through the air. It had no wings. It had no tail fin, no nothing. Looked like it should be able to be moving through the air, keeping up the airplane at 30,000 feet. So, and so then uh, kind of one of these like cigar shaped yeah. crafts that we've heard a lot about in the news recently. Yeah. And wow. she bent over to get her phone, and that thing got real bright, and it was gone. <laughs> wow. I don't know. That's wild. So That's it. That's it. <laughs> I was going to say, going back to uh, the Shadow People story you mentioned, it seems like 
even when I first started doing like my show like a year or so ago, that it was like a like a thing that it was starting to like uptake a little bit that there was a, maybe like one in five people had seen shadow people. And now mm-hmm. I feel like it's getting to the point where it's like almost everybody has been like, oh yeah, wait, I've seen that before when you start actually connecting the clues. So yeah. just a weird thing that kind of pertaining back to what you guys were mentioning earlier, that if people don't share their stories, then we're never going to be able to figure out what the hell things are. So if it wasn't for people starting to share their shadow people encounters, we wouldn't start to have an understanding of these things. And it makes me wonder if there actually is an uptick in these things where people are seeing them more regularly, or if it's just that people are actually reporting the stories now. I think probably accomplished to both. I really do. I, I think people are finally starting to decide, you know what? I don't care if people think I'm crazy. I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> and fortunately for me, I never care what people think. So, <laughs> Now, I agree with you both because I, I have a lot of shadow people stories. I never had a name for it until we, we went down this, this, this journey together, this paranormal journey and started talking to people and, Oh, that's what that is. Okay, it has a name. <laughs> even as a kid, when I used to have the experiences with them, I called them the moving shadows. And I didn't even, until I got into the community, shadow people wasn't even like a term that was, I had even put yeah. two and two together with, honestly. <laughs> well, it's like that UFO in the Navy. I never thought anything else about it. It had, it happened. I was like, yeah, okay. And I never even thought about it again until I started doing all this research. It's like, hey, wait, I remember that. <laughs> you know, and back then, I mean, that's in the 80s, so nobody ever talked about it. Because if you did, you was crazy. Yeah, I or, bet that wasn't the first time you'd seen that either. <laughs> well, they figured I was crazy anyway, so I wouldn't have to worry about too much. <laughs> this guy can report all the stories he wants. The, people are seeing all of his other stuff. They're, they're not going to dig into just the UFO stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're like, it's just George. It's okay. The UFO he's seen. So let's let him alone. <laughs> Give him something to drink. Heavy eye. <laughs> That's what they do. Uh, when they go do abductions half the time, people don't associate it as actually being an abduction because they just spray you down with some alcohol and throw you in the woods somewhere. <laughs> you wake up and you're just like, God damn, man, I must have had a good ass night. <laughs> <laughs> That got half a million dollars overseas. I got that here with no clothes on. I didn't know. I swear it was missing time. I must have been abducted. <laughs> hey, it's a good excuse anyway. <laughs> you can't be blamed for what you did while you were abducted. <laughs> I'm going to start going to abduction instead of Russian vodka. You know. <laughs> but uh, I guess uh, starting to kind of wrap it up towards the end here. Uh, for anybody that's interested in your books, uh, wants to come find your work, uh, wants to come and share some stories with you, uh, where can they find your work and where can they uh, get in contact with you? Well, I have a website my beautiful wife designed for me and did all the stuff for her. She's awesome. And it's called uh, authorgeorgelunsford.x10host.com. And then, of course, I'm on Amazon. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, MeWe. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and 
if there's any more that you think of, uh, I'll add all of your links into the uh, show description. So if anybody wants to come find anything, just go and check there and you'll be able to find everything. <laughs> yep. And if you go to my website, there's a way you can send me emails on my website. I have, uh, I actually have a email account attached to my website. So I'll get, I'll get all the information. Anybody's got questions, just wants to talk, wants to, you know, whatever. I'm easy to get along with. <laughs> This has been an absolutely awesome show, and you're definitely an easy person to get along with. And this has been the second time that we've done a show together, and I'm really looking forward to getting to do more in the future and uh, getting to do more th- with these two, of course, too, because they both have some awesome input, of course. I do. I agree with you. I agree. You yeah, guys thank are you great. so much for coming on. No, hey, I, I've enjoyed I, I, this so much. I appreciate it. All right. If anybody out there has a topic or guest that you want us to talk about, please reach out either on email or through social media. And uh, you can get a hold of us through email at bizarreencounters at outlook.com. And that's spelled B-I-Z-A-R-R-E because I know I mentioned it almost on every single show, but it's spelled multiple ways. So you want to make sure that you're spelling it correctly. Uh, if you do shoot us an email, more often than not, it seems like it always goes to the junk folder. So keep an eye out there. We do respond to every single message we get. It's just a matter of it hopefully not getting lost in your spam or junk folder. Uh, you can also get a hold of us through email through our link tree. Uh, up at the top, there's a submission form. Um, fill out all the information that'll go directly to our email and same rules apply. Of course, keep an eye out in your, uh, junk or spam folder. Uh, if you guys want to get a hold of me through Instagram, that's the one that I'm the most active on. Um, I do bounce onto the Facebook, but if you guys want to get a hold of me soon as possible, uh, Instagram's your best bet of doing so. So, but all the links that we've mentioned throughout the entire show, all will be available down in the show description and, uh, all of our links in particular are all available through our link tree. So definitely go and check that out. It's L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash Bizarre Encounters. And with that, I hope you guys enjoyed the show and uh, keep it bizarre. 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 Bizarre.